And that jarring cacophony tells you that for the 200th time, yes, I'll say that again, 200th time, it's the Power of Three podcast. Happy birthday to us. I don't know if that song's in copyright or not, so I'm not going to sing it. And also, you don't want to hear me sing anyway. But yes, you're listening to the Power of Three podcast, episode 200. I'm Kenny Smith. I've been here for about 197 of those. And I am joined today by my former work colleague, my pal, podcast perfectionist that's a good word for him he's just been telling me lots of wonderful things to do in zoom that i didn't know you could do so let's say hello to the one the only the wonderfully brilliant impressionist of canine i'm running out of superlatives it's stephen day also known as stevie in brackets he stroke him how do i follow that kenny I, i was all prepared with that you know, who I am, where I am, and the fact that I live in a lighthouse. I don't know, but I thought that was appropriate for today. Hi, Kenny. 200. Yeah, the mighty 200. 200 Amazing. not out. Amazing. I, it's surprising you're as sane as you are. Well, probably that explains why I am as sane as I am, which some people <laughs> may say is not very much. But yes, it's episode 200, and we're having a little party, and we're marking the very imminent release on Blu-ray of Doctor Who season 15 and we're going to have some special guests on not just today but over the next three episodes as well and they're going to be telling us about some of the amazing new features that are appearing on these discs but also Stevie I was amazed when we were chatting that you were not particularly familiar with some of these stories so maybe let the listeners know when the last time you saw these stories was, if ever? Well, I I have seen them all, and I did see them quite a while ago, but Horror of Fang Rock has always stuck in my head, but the first time I knew about that was reading mm-hmm. the book by Sticks, and it's stuck in my head, and it's one of my favourite books from Doctor Who and episodes. So it starts with a bang. The Invisible Enemy was one that kind of bypassed me, which is surprising because I'm such a huge canine fan. Yes, affirmative. Thank you, Kenny. But I always remembered the giant prawn, (laughs) even though I didn't see it. And I must have have caught that as a youngster because it terrified me, this kind of giant prawn. You and Um, Dave both. Yeah, bro. Uh, What else have we got? We've got the... Well, we've got Underworld. Yeah. Underworld? Yes, Underworld. Mm-hmm. And I know that gets panned and so on. But again, I'm sure I read that or an extract of that or a synopsis of that. Was that a Target book? It was, yeah. It was. And I loved it. I hadn't seen it all the way through. Okay. So that was a surprise. Sunmakers, I had seen... Um, I can't remember what I thought of it. It wasn't one of my favourites, but it was something that bumbled along in the background. And the... Uh, the invasion of time 
subtitled The Day the Suntarans Nearly Fell Into the Swimming Pool. <laughs> Who can forget that? And that's a more recent one to my edition. That was one that I yep. I think, again, I'd read. It was a good read. Mm-hmm. When I say it wasn't quite as good on screen, it was a bit weird in places. It yep. was um, pretty intense. And the goodbye is very odd. And of yeah. course, the the first time I remember the fourth wall being broken by the Doctor. Mm, yes. And I was only just reminded of that. But it's also the season that uh, mentioned, you know, Gallifrey is that in Ireland? <laughs> and yep. that came as a surprise to me because I'd forgotten about that. So that's kind of my recollection of yeah. the season. Um, but I, I, Image of the Fendel, any memories of that from oh, previous? It's, it's so, mem- so memorable that I didn't remember it. <laughs> I, I remembered it. I remembered it in a book, and I have to say I was disappointed watching it. I can see the maybe the similarities to Canine and Company, you know, the covens, the witches, and everything else. I more felt sorry for the little baby Fendel who got, you know, you had the big Fendel wandering around, and the little baby Fendel. It, I don't know. It didn't leave much of an impression. Again, an enjoyable romp. Yeah. I think the thing that stands out to me for the monsters is the designers obviously had a hair and whisker thing going on. <laughs> because that seems to be prevalent through quite a lot of the, the series. And yeah. I'll tell you an interesting link, which I can link to David Tennant, and a disappointment. I'm going to call the episode, it wasn't Daleks Take Manhattan. What was it called? Daleks in Manhattan. Daleks in Manhattan. I always call it Daleks Take Manhattan. You're a Muppet. <laughs> yeah, I am. But... There is a scene in that where the Doctor doesn't know it's the Daleks and they're wandering around the sewer and they find this green glowing circular thing and he's poking it and my brain said, oh, we've got Rutans in this because <laughs> that's what it looks like. Yep. And I saw Fang Rock again and I thought, yeah, I must mention that in a podcast. No one else is going to make that link, but that's what I thought. Yep. Just for a moment. Interesting. Interesting. So there we go. There's a that's a very quick overview, but we'll be discussing each story a little bit more in depth um, today and over the next couple of episodes as well. So why don't we start off with Horror Fang Rock and let's hear a quick excerpt from that. They always said the beast of Fang Rock would be back. I thought I'd lock the enemy out. Instead, I've locked it in. With us. An alien creature travelling through space. Why come here? I think we're in terrible trouble. The devil's there. This lighthouse is under attack, and by morning we might all be dead. What do you think it is, Doctor? I don't know what it is, Lena. It's desperate. It's coming. I think it's time we were getting back. The creature has got into the lighthouse. Now we must fight for our lives. There we go. So, Stevie, I have to say, it's one of the all-time great stories. I remember first time I encountered it was through Target novelization form, long yeah. before I saw a pirate copy of it, long before I got an official VHS. And it's just one of those ones, you watch it, and it does everything you would want. It feels yeah. like a Hinchcliffe story, but it's not a Hinchcliffe story. It's quite an amazing thing. I Sometimes you read a book, and then you see the TV version of it, and you're disappointed and I'm not. I could watch this programme 
and read the book over and over again. It's it's my go-to comfort comfort thing. It just works. It's do you know people describe it as what base under siege, maybe that kind of thing. I don't really think that's the case. It's just an interesting environment. I like lighthouses. The horror of the fact that you know you can only go up, you can only go down, or you can fall off. Yeah, it's such a clever and suspenseful um, product put together. That complete with the sets, and I have to say the um, the use of well, what they call it in those days, CSO, uh, blue screen, green screen. Yeah, if you're going to be nitpicky about it, it's got its problems. But I think, wow, well done to them. They they did something on a budget. I've read about it. I know there were difficulties. I know it was a small set. I know it was difficult to shoot. But that stands the test of time. It definitely does. I mean, it's the cast are great. Yeah, the model works so good. The just I mean, the whole tone of it. I think the fact that Tom Baker's in a stinking mood actually helps the story. It gives you that somber feeling to it all, yeah. and it just it moves along at some pace. And it just shows you Terence Dix in those days. He could just write you. He could. I mean, considering that he had to write this at very short notice after what would become State of Decay further down the line was scrapped. Then and he turned this in to deadline. Just wow. Absolutely incredible. Incredible. And because to say what I've always said about him, you know, he can turn out a decent book. I, mean, I don't know about timescales and so on, but uh, he can turn out a decent story, a decent yarn, and you're hooked. And you go back. You go back to it. I mean, there are there are always issues. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I forget the, the name of the lady who comes in later. Adelaide. Adelaide, and she screams everywhere and really gets to slap her. Um, you know, we're all we're all violence not good, but you know, yeah. But <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I I don't know if you've seen the the mock up of the Pebble Mill set. Yes, I worked with, and um, a Pebble Mill was quite small, I think, uh, for those studios. But again, how clever, how clever to to use those small bits and pieces. But you got the feeling this was a big building. Yep. Have you been to a real lighthouse, Stevie? And been, I have. And everyone toured them. I have I've, years yeah. ago. And you know, things down to the curved doors. You know, to save money, you build a you build a square door that's parallel with everything. But no, no, they went for the the proper lighthouse curved doors. Um, you know, the generator and stuff, attention to detail. Uh, amazing, absolutely yeah. amazing, and. I think it it succeeds because of Tom's bad mood, because of the lack of money, because of unhappiness with directors, because of pressures that were on. But whatever it was, that magic just just worked. It did. I mean, Paddy Russell's direction is great. I mean, that that episode three cliffhanger is just, and I've locked it in here with us. What a brilliant cliffhanger! Just. Yep. Very few like that, and it's just sort of, oh my god, they're all going to die. Yeah, yeah. I feel that the characters themselves, there were, there were so much more to them that we didn't know, but you could imagine. And especially as a child reading the Target novel, you, it was that kind of book that you imagined they had histories and other things behind them. You know, you were led down certain roads, but even watching the other day again, you know, you wonder about Rubens. Mm-hmm. 
you know, family and this and that and, you know, and Vince and everything else. You actually care about the characters. Sometimes there are episodes where you don't care about the characters. Yeah. Um, you, you maybe care about the Doctor and the Companion, but after that you don't really go. This is one of those that, um, especially since, well, body count is high. Very Everybody much so. dies. Tell me something, though. I mean, all the way through... Ruben mentions that, oh, you know, the legend of Fang Rock, you know, mm. it happened before, it'll happen again. Has anyone done the before? Not that I'm aware of. I know that there was a a sequel in the Lethbridge Stewart novels, which had Lethbridge Stewart and Travers investigating something at Fang Rock. Mm. But uh, I'm not, uh, I haven't read it personally, but I know that there is some sort of sequel to it, but I don't think it's a prequel. Well, you know, interesting. You know, maybe one one day someone will pick that up. Maybe we won't have Vince, but maybe we'll find out what the beast before was. <laughs> maybe not in that accent. I'm, I'm not bidding for a part here, obviously. Okay, well, we'll let you off on that count. So, yeah. But no, I mean, for me, it's definitely one of the all-time greats. 100%, no doubt about it. 10 out of 10 on the Stevie scale. That works for me. So there we go. So we've heard uh, your thoughts about it. I've shared my thoughts too. So why don't we find out a little bit more about some making of stuff here and find out about the picture restoration, which has been undertaken by Peter Crocker. And here he is having a chat with myself quite recently. Yeah, I'm Peter Crocker and I do the picture restoration on the Blu-ray sets. Welcome back, Peter. I would imagine with it being season 15 that you would have a pretty decent standard of source material to work from in general. Yes, it's, um, it, it's on the whole, it's not bad. And certainly we've got all of the original transmission tapes. Um, but, you know, they were made sort of 40, over 45 years ago. So they're not exempt from problems. I think... Some, some are better than others, as, as you would expect. But largely, the problems fall into two categories. There's the problem of issues that were there at the time because of the, the technology, um, thinking particularly of, sort of you know, CSO fringing or camera alignment problems or, or just problems uh, specific to image tape, like banding across the screen, that sort of thing. And then, uh, and that's the sort of thing that would have been seen at the time at home if you were watching with sort of technically proficient eyes, which I don't think any of us really were at that time. And then there's the the other problem that we have now of the, the tapes being so much older. Um, although we're working from digital transfers that were done usually between 10 and 15 years ago. But again, because of the way those transfers uh, those transfers were done, sometimes there are minor faults there that possibly could be improved on, maybe, maybe not, if we had access, easy access to go back to the two tapes again now. But it's it's always a massive gamble to do that, and we very, very rarely do that, because um, we, we could find that we go back to the two tape, pay a fortune to get a new transfer of it, and then we find that the playback is even worse now than it was 15 years ago, because the tape's 15 years older, and the uh, there, there aren't as many machines around to play them back on, so you're sort of stuck with the hardware you have as well. So yeah, there's um, you know while we haven't got the issues of some stories where um, we haven't got the original tapes, we have got the original tapes, but 
in lots of cases, they're really not the best. So they still need a little bit of scrubbing up to try and make them look half decent on the wide variety of EVs that people have these days with all the, you know, um, with all the processing that goes on in them on top. So if we go through it bit by bit, I imagine that power of Fang Rock would have needed a little bit extra, given this is getting new effects and things like that added to it. Um, they need a lot of work for the new effects from the guy who's doing them. From my point of view, the, the main thing with Horror of Fang Rock is that the original DVD was done very, very early in the range, and there were quite a few faults in it that really couldn't be fixed at that time. So they took the pragmatic approach of just chopping bits out, which I don't think anyone ever realized because pro probably they you know they could have probably convert, uh, compared it with a v the vhs or an off-air recording but i don't think i'm not aware anyone ever did but when i came to actually do it i found that um, all of the episodes episodes one two and four that contain film all had varying bits cut out usually at the beginning and end of the film inserts presumably for some instability that was there on the recording or the film transfer and also the film, the film transfers um, into the episode um, at BBC Birmingham, Pebble Mill, were pretty poor. And I think we noted even at the time that um, in, the t in technical reports that they had really quite major problems with the film inserts. And I know when the team who were working on it before me for the DVD were um, were working on it, they they generally approached Horror of Fang Rock, especially the film sequences, but all of it, in fact, uh, by blasting it with uh, lots of noise reduction, which made the pictures rather more smeary than and, and less sharp than that it ought to be. So, so we've start, basically we've started from scratch with with this and gone back to the transfers in the digital archive at the BBC and, and worked from those. And it's, it's quite interesting when you um, to see just in its raw state just how rough it is in places. The the film. Um, all, the, all of the film was really quite riddled with horizontal uh, lines, uh, some sort of electronic interference, which which absolutely would have been seen at home at the time, but probably people would have just thought, oh, well, you know, either ignored it, not really noticed it, or thought it might be something to do with just the, the transmission on the day. Whereas, in fact, it was burnt into the, uh, the master recording of it. It's, it, you know, it's still there to an extent. If you look for, if you go looking for it, hopefully people won't go looking for it. <laughs> it's a bit of a sad thing to do, but hopefully it won't leap out and be that obvious. And I've also been able to fix, be able to fix the beginning and ends of shots, so the episode wouldn't have anything missing. Not that there was anything massively important that was cut out. There was certainly no dialogue or you know lines missing. But one of the episodes, I can't remember if it's episode one or. Or might be an episode four actually. There was a you know a surprisingly hefty chunk of film that was uh, was chopped out, but about two seconds at the end of a shot. And as far as I could see, there wasn't a massive, massively good reason why it couldn't have been fixed at the time because there wasn't anything particularly you know worse about that bit than other bits inside. But may you know maybe they just ran out of time and thought, well, we've we've done as much as we can, so we'll just chop a bit out. But at least horror fan rock is is. is the completest, it's, it's as complete as it has been since it was first shown in 1977 now. Quite possibly my earliest Doctor Who memory. I look forward to watching the Blu-ray because there's something specifically I remember about it. With a uh, Rutan saying human. I remember a green thing saying human. 
and that's when I learned what the word human was. So I look forward to rewatching and just specifically for that moment. So we shall see. <laughs> so then yeah. we've got the the fun and games of the invisible enemy. So who is this one? Yeah, um, it's hard to think if there's anything massively to say about the invisible enemy in terms of restoration for the DVD. I did look at episode three with a very critical eye because when I was doing that for the DVD, uh, there was there was probably about a five-minute section about two-thirds of the way into the episode where, where the two-inch tape playback, well, or or recording, was was clogged. So one of the one of the four heads on the video recorder um, had got some dirt on it, and it wasn't it wasn't bad enough to actually cause the recording to be unusable. But it's it was noticeably inferior, and it's one of those where if if it had been done like that as part of the digital archiving project, I can see why they uh, by the, why they wouldn't have aborted it and gone back to square one because they had targets to meet, and I think in in, in the archiving project they generally had about thirty five minutes or, or forty minutes to transfer every half hour program, so. It, it had to be a really disastrous thing to for them to actually stop and go back and start again or re redo sections. And um, as long as it was okay, they would just say, "Well, that's 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 okay." <laughs> and of course, we have to see that in the context transferring in the nineties, they were transferring um, two thousands, whenever it was, they were transferring the vast majority of the uh, BBC's two-inch tape stock. So there's a lot of programming and material there that will never be watched by anybody you know there's just the interest isn't there it's got it's got to be archived in case anyone does want it but you know there's a lot of a lot of programs that aren't going to see the light of day so you can see why they wouldn't treat doctor who with, particularly with any extra uh, special care when they're doing the transfers but uh, but anyway to, to come back to it there, there was this section where their heads were clogged and the, the, it, it resulted in a very grainy and slightly sort of desaturated sort of loss of colour in horizontal stripes here you know, across the, the picture and it, it it starts very gradually and then gets worse and becomes quite bad and then and then suddenly stops which is when the the muck on the uh, tape head clears so I, I fixed that as best I could for the DVD and I was expecting to have to revisit it and maybe even go back to square one and uh, and and try and do a better job of it but when I actually came to the episode I couldn't actually see where the problem had originally been, so obviously I did a good enough job for the DVD. So that's you know that's gone through. As, as usual with these things, a, a few other a few a few other little tweaks that you always pick up more dropouts. And however hard you try, there's always still always a few tape dropouts get through in the end, because the original tapes are absolutely riddled with them. But yeah, for the for the most part, the invisible enemy actually look quite good. Is is generally quite brightly lit, which which helps the um, the sharpness of of things. But yeah, a few, a, few, a, few, a few little tweaks here and there, but nothing, nothing major, nothing too, too difficult to do. You talk of brightly lit there for the invisible enemy. That's something you can't always accuse the image of the Fendal of being in places. <laughs> no, no, that's the opposite. Yeah, and, and and that did bring a few problems this time that hopefully I've been able to sort out that wasn't possible to do for the DVD. One of uh, one or more of the cameras, but particularly. Um, I think I think it's one of the cameras that was used in that had a um, had a, a, a burn on the on one of the tubes, which le which led to a 
sort of a thick, a thick, fuzzy vertical, not well, not quite vertical, slightly squiggly line you know, from top to bottom. Sometimes a couple of them on the shots, which is is visible on everything, but particularly on dark shots, uh, you could you know you could see it there. So I've uh, I've been able to get rid of that for the most part, or, or certainly improve this a lot. So it isn't quite as noticeable as uh, as it would otherwise have been. Lots lots of film. In images of the Vandal as well, which unfortunately we don't have. It would have been lovely if we had uh, the original film inserts because the the transfers into the episode were not not really the best. And, and I remember for the DVD, it was um, I can't I can't quite remember what I did for some of the misalignment on that, whether I did anything at all. But anyway, I went back to the went back to the original source tape I had for those sequences and sort of re redid the film bits from scratch. So. It's a fairly minor thing. It's uh, it's, it's quite nuanced, but um, I think the film is definitely a bit a little bit sharper and more stable than it uh, than it was for the DVD. But it's never going to look fabulous because the uh, the original transfers were so um, so shonky. But uh, if if anyone were to you know see uh, compare it with what actually went out or what's on the archive tape in uh, the BBC, it's um, it's a, it's a lot better than it was for the for the Blu-ray. Yeah. You're a magician, Peter. I don't know how you do it, but you're well. I, I do know how you do it. You were just explaining it. But yes, you're you're like Harry Potter of tapes and such likes. <laughs> then we've got the Sunmakers. Again, that's oh, yes. one that that I always imagine is one that you're with in terms of you're with everything meant to be like on Pluto, but it still manages to look like it's bloody freezing, even though there's all these artificial suns around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very fond of the Sunmakers. I was, it's, um, I, I think it's a great story. It's very, very entertaining. Yeah, in terms of the restoration, um, for the, the the tape sections are actually pretty good for the Sunmakers. Um, so there's, there's not a lot to say about that. It's just the usual thing of you know, um, fixing dropouts. The film again, there's quite a, quite a lot of film in it, and that just needed the same sort of treatment that um, that we generally do. It's quite warpy in places, especially after edits. Um, so I've tried to um, straighten out some of those sort of warped shots and stabilise it a little bit better than it was for the uh, for the DVD. Just just made uh, tried to make the film so it's just that little bit little bit sharper by pulling in the misalignment of the um, the twin lens telecine operator because the, the equipment that they used to transfer films back then um, it, it had two lenses, uh, one for each field and. Because because on a, on film the fields should come from exactly the same point in time, they should be pretty much identical to each other. But if um, if there's a slight slight geometric difference between one of the lenses the lens on one field and the lens on the second field, the, the, the image doesn't quite match, and that can actually produce a quite a detracting sort of blurring and sort of lots of definition so so basically what i tried to do for that is um, try and bring them together by using the using one of the fields as a, as a reference to, to warp, warp the other one back to and hopefully they, they, they you, you can never get it perfect because the resolution just really isn't there um, you'd be able to do it far better if it was um, on if you had a much higher resolution to start with but you know, in, in, in terms of pixels, it's only 720 across, and the definition isn't there really to be able to uh, do absolute miracles. But sometimes, but, but it, it certainly helps a bit. So it's a, it's a bit, it's a bit, um, 
a bit of an easier watch, which is what we're after, really. And fairly straightforward with the VT stuff from the studio. Yeah, the v, yeah, the VT stuff that the makers was, was as I, I recall, was very straightforward. And, uh, again, just just picking up additional dropouts here and there, but it was um, it probably didn't go down many generations. I don't know how many how many edits there were for that, but uh, I don't think Pennant Roberts was a director to uh, uh, he, was, he was too keen on re- reworking things many many times to try and make them perfect. So uh, so it, it probably was quite a high gen high tape generation anyway. So. It's it looks you know look, looks pretty good I think. Then of course we've got Underworld and of course that's a, an example where I'm sure that yourself and the rest of the team would love to have had the original tapes uh, without CSO and such likes are there to <laughs> be able to go in them and remake it. But uh, how was this one from well, what you had to work with? Well, yeah, in a way, in a way, but I think. Um, I, I think I think Underworld gets a gets a bad rap. Really, I think I think the for my in my opinion the reason Underworld isn't a, a fabulous story is because it's not a fabulous story. Really, I think a lot of people say that it's bad because of the CSO, but I think the CSO is actually very very good in it for the most part. Um, yes, there's a bit of fringing here and there, which um, on on people's sort of faces and heads if they're running about, it's it's not really feasible to do anything with the with that after the event uh, to a great degree. But the main thing that I think makes a bad CSO really bad is if the um, if the perspective is is wrong when people are sort of walking down corridors or or manoeuvring through virtual sets. And and actually, I think Norman Stewart and the the camera crew and the electro and Mitch Mitchell did an absolutely amazing job for the time because I don't think there are any shots where the perspective is wrong, you know. Um, so sometimes you, you you see the same you, uh, the same backgrounds being reused if you if you're watching it too closely. But again, I don't think that would have been a massive problem back in um, 1977 with people watching you know, watching it. You you weren't watching TV that closely for technical things. You were just trying to follow the story. So I mean, you know, I I feel quite defensive about the um, about the CSO because for the most part it's very very good and. Um, I have made a few extra tweaks for the for the Blu-ray for that. Nothing, nothing that I think should um, massively um, offend anybody. It's really a case of just just helping out what was nearly nearly right um, and helping to sell the story. So, for example, there are a couple of instances where people clearly uh, I can't remember to the, if they they either walk in front of a rock when they should be behind it or something. It's something like that anyway. Or or the, or the um, the edge of the, pit, the the edge of the screen where they walk in is isn't really in the right place. So I, I've you know I've made a couple of minor minor tweaks to that, took a couple of shots just to uh, to make it how they would have wanted it to be, you know, at the time. I know people I know people will complain about that. There's some people, a few people will complain about that. But really, with the the, the Blu-rays aren't about um, they're not about presenting um, warts and all what was. There back in the day, they're about presenting the story in the best possible light to to new and older audiences watching on massively bigger screens than they would have done at the time. So, um, and as I said to you before, I, I'm actually I'm actually a, a, I would be a, a big I, I would be very keen on if they if they were to do it if there was space to do it to actually put a completely raw untouched transfers of the episodes as they're archived on the discs. You know, for people who 
want to see them as they were was at all because then because then then people would have no reason to complain about making money changes but, but as, soon as, as soon as we start painting dropouts out and and fixing um you know, fixing off locks and you know um stabilizing you know jerky film or, or unstable film we're, you know we're making changes so it's it's just a case of that and there are already a lot of um a lot of minor minor weeks to uh, to the uh, the CSO for the DVD anyway, just um, just tidying up a little bit of fringing here and there. Yeah. So so just a little bit more of that really for the uh, for the Blu-ray, and yeah. uh, hopefully you know people will enjoy the story more. I doubt it, <laughs> but, but but not oh. from the not but not from the point of view of the uh, the CSO being bad. And, and oh, oh, and one thing I have done actually, which is quite um, which I. I think, I think is is quite nice to be able to do is um, there's one shot in particular where um, characters are running across a rope bridge, um, escaping from something or other in episode two or three, something like that. And um, just because of the lighting in the studio um, and the way the keying worked on the CSO, the um, a lot of the time they um, the, the color the color of the costumes and the, all the color in the faces basically went away so it was virtually black and white um as, as they were running across so um uh, so so i basically put uh, put the color back on that using using some nifty new uh, uh, new software yeah, I, think people, people, I think people really notice that if, you, if they're watching side by side it's not one of those things where people will look at that and say oh wow that's suddenly better than remember it i think people will just think oh you know that's that looks all right so, I do wonder how many people sit down and have a VHS playing, the DVD playing, and the Blu-ray playing simultaneously. I'm sure there will be some, but uh, I don't quite oh, get yes. that mentality personally. <laughs> but uh, well, that was, uh, like, to be fair, I mean that that, that 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 might well have been me 30 years ago. <laughs> I've got over, got over that now. I've seen it from the other side, and you know, uh, uh, I think a lot of the time, like you know, life's too short for that. It's about enjoying program. Yeah. I was actually thinking about you over Christmas when I was watching some of the music channels and watching some of the old film prints of uh, some videos like uh, Greg Lake and uh, just all these old films. That it's not, there's so many scratches on there and they need tidied up. I know a man who could do that brilliantly, but um, oh well. <laughs> but that's, that's just my mentality, thinking, mm, restoration, the way that they restored last Christmas to look incredible. So yeah, can be done. But um, we're not here to talk about Christmas music videos. We've got uh, The Invasion of Time next to round off this set. And I would imagine that, again, having done the, the DVD for the improved and the new updated effects, then this was one that wouldn't have required as much work? Or am I wrong? No, 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 you're not wrong, really. I think the main... Um, um, I don't remember... I don't think there were any particular issues with the VT sections but with Invasion of Time again because m most of it had been sorted out for the uh, for the DVD um, so again it's, it's just you know picking up more, even more more than more of the dropouts uh, the, the main uh, the main thing was the additional um, work done on the film because for the DVD well maybe a lot of people don't know but um, the film never looked quite right for the for the DVD so it, it, it looked nice because it had all been Sort of replaced because the there was a print uh, a copy of the transmission print insert i think in the archive i don't think that's held by a private collector i think it is in bbc but it was really quite faded 
um, already uh, when it was transferred for the DVD. And I know Jonathan Wood had quite a lot of trouble pulling out some of the some of the colours because it it had, it had started to fade. Look what that was. Over, you know, I can't remember when the invasion of time was done, but it was probably getting on for 15 years ago. So um, we, we did consider doing a new transfer of the film, but we've actually looked at other faded films sort of more recently and and done comparisons. And uh, we took the decision that actually, bearing in mind how faded it was 15 years ago, and the fact that it's not it, it's not kept in refrigerated archives, it's basically just kept in the main archive, which is cool, but it's not 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 cold enough to stop fading of that sort of thing. Um, we thought that it would be almost inevitable that an upscale of the nice transfer that was done 15 years ago uh, would actually be better than a new transfer, albeit in high de- in proper high definition, because a lot of the detail that you would want to get from that high definition transfer just won't be there anymore because it's 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 gone. Particularly, you know the the particularly things like clouds in the sky you tend to lose them and detailed in shadows so um so uh, so I, th- I think if, i think it does look very nice the other problem with the film before uh, um, as jonathan had a lot of trouble in, you know getting the color out of it the grading sessions for the film sequences were done on a, at a different time from the episodes and as a result there was a mismatch between some elements of costumes and you know, the general look of it which uh, which when they were put together uh, particularly in episode i think episode six is it's at its worst you see um Beruza's headdress just keeps changing from sort of crim- crimson to purple mm. so anyway that's that's all been sorted out now and it all looks um looks as it should and uh and uh, similar to how it, how it did when it was originally transmitted but but sharper and uh, with a bit more definition so that's um, quite I'm quite pleased with that. I can't remember if there were any. I don't think there were any um, effects to remake over the film. Other people will know better than me, no, really. I don't know. Can't remember if, if, if there were. I've I've tried to remake them properly, remake them very well anyway uh, to match the original. But I, I don't think there were. I think I think it was mostly just you know for film inserts. As there wasn't, it was just the grading that was the issue. So fair amount of work there, but um, nothing too taxing. So on the on the whole, season fifteen wasn't too uh, it wasn't too difficult. It's, it's always nice just to try and get things looking as spiffing as they can, as you can. Yeah, it sounds like it's been a decent amount of work, but not enough to sort of virtually destroy your soul. For example, like season eight would have been. No, that's fine. I mean, it's a lot. Of, it's a lot of episodes, but um, uh, yeah. Um, the, the, there were no, you know, there weren't really any, any, any problems that I'm scratching my head thinking, oh, how am I going to tackle this? It's all, you know, it's all stuff that, you know, um, worn, um, worn that path down very well in the past. So no, no, uh, no nasty surprises. I think the Fantastic. hardest thing was probably the, sorting out the film in horror fang rock because that that was really quite nasty. But uh, it's. it's it, it, it's, it's still very soft. There's just, there's just no detail there at all in it, but but at least it's it's clean now and as sharp as it's ever going to be unless someone actually finds the film. I look forward to seeing it and the labours of your hard work again. Peter, thank you so much yet again. You're a star. <laughs> Thanks, Kenny. Thank you very much, Peter. 
there we go, lots of new facts and all the cleanup and how it's done. Subtle things that you probably would never notice, but now that he's mentioned them, we'll be looking out for all those things across the box set. So thank you again, Peter. So let's move on, Stevie, for the second story we'll chat about today, The Invisible Enemy. Emergency, emergency. Shuttle approach non-collision course out of control. All medical personnel stand by. Emergency, emergency. Where are we going, Doctor? Into the land of dreams and fantasy, Leela. Hello. Hello. You cannot prevail. I am the one. It is my purpose. It is my destiny. We are in control of the entire center. Release me! I'm fighting for my mind. Whatever it was that attacks her from the others is also affecting me. The region must be destroyed. Kill. Kill. You mentioned at the, uh, the top that the giant prawn scared you. I remember I was more scared by the Target novelization cover where it's that blood red shade and you've got Tom going, oh, and it just it's just a wonderful cover. But unfortunately, when you see it on telly these days, it doesn't quite convey that sense of fear. But as Dave mentioned back in one of our very early episodes, that prawn terrified him and it's terrified you, which... Yep. It's yep. fascinating to know, considering that it was a bit of a running joke for many years. And you can understand why. And you can understand why people don't like it. But I seem to remember at the time, it was the talk of the steamy. And I probably wasn't watching or allowed to watch Who at that point. But, you know, I was sneaking in. I was seeing bits and pieces. People at school were talking about it. My dad's, my mum's pals were talking about it and quickly shushed because Stephen doesn't listen, doesn't want, can't watch this, it gives him nightmares. And I'm like, oh, what happened? And, you know, it, it, it seemed to be something that I think it was the, I think K9 made a big impact on the world yep. of television. I think there was a lot of talking about that. Um, it's an odd story. I, I, I think it's quite a slow one. And, you know, the, the shrinking down goes back to into the Dalek without without having to explain it. We'll just shrink you down and inject you in. It, it's a wee bit slow. Um, I love the K9 stuff and I love the Leela stuff. I have to say Leela was uh, and is one of my favourite companions in print on the telly and in audio. I think yeah. I think that what they capture now in audio and big finish with Leela and Tom is absolutely amazing. You can imagine what's happening. You can yeah. see it in your mind's eye. So I'm glad I've seen it again. I'm glad I've seen K9's intro. I'd, this goes across all the episodes. I mean, just because of how they had to record sound, and K9 was so noisy. <laughs> yes. And, and there's just no, there's no chance to do additional dialogue record and miss this out. The microphone had to be close to him, and you know, this and other episodes with Tom close to him and. It's just the grinding, the grinding of gears, unfortunately, let it down a little bit. But it's a, again, it's a fun romp, and it was a good read. Yeah, it was a, a, a bit a better read again, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's the first time I remember seeing it. In fact, I probably I probably actually saw the fantastic, or it's not the, it's Fantastic Voyage, 
mm. and re- reading the target novelization thinking ah this is where Doctor Who's been inspired from and because I love that I love that film just you know, shrinking down yeah. and being and there's a very good Spongebob episode which parodies, parodies <laughs> it and I would recommend it but yeah it's you're fighting the budget and it's, it's you cannot fault it for the imagination that it shows and what it tries to do no. but it's yeah, it's limited, but as you say, K9 is the thing that makes the most impression in this and some of the other model work. And uh, that is really impressive, you know, all the spaceship shots. Yeah, I mean, the, all the model work that was done with a passion on Doctor Who and Blake 7 of yeah. its time. Um, and people talk about shaky spaceships and in the days when they thought, we'll move the spaceship rather than the camera. Mm-hmm. or they had to move everything to make it look like it was all moving, they were up against it. But yeah. those boys and girls that were building that and doing that were working their socks off and gave us... We, we didn't notice that when we were tiny. You know, we were just watching a spaceship flying over there and, and now with a more critical eye we can go... Oh. But, you know, that work should not be should not be forgotten. Absolutely not. I think it. I mean, it looks it looks wonderful. Matt Irvin and the team did a great job. Brilliant. And it's yeah, it definitely is memorable, and I think it stands up well. And what they achieved on a budget of zero, virtually fabulous. So yeah, I, I would never, never for all the faults in this story, it, you cannot fault the model work. No. Maybe some of the effects, like where you can tell where canines lasered the wall, and you can see the polystyrene's been pre-cut, and then it falls out, and like yeah, yeah. But you know that's that's an easy that, fix, that's forgivable digital and, effect. And of course, I, and I was going to look this up, and you'll know the answer to this um, instantly. But I mean, how many different characters has Michael Sheard played in Doctor Who oh. over the years? And you don't mind. It's just like yeah. six. I can think of off the top of my head on screen plus one big finish. And that's so, brilliant. Yes, know? absolutely. Aberdonian, of course, which is he? uh, he's oh, one of our, well, was one of our, yeah, he's yeah. Uh, one of our own. And uh, he was an Aberdeen fan. I remember seeing him at a convention in the 90s and uh, he knew I was uh, an Aberdeen fan as I interviewed him in Edinburgh a few years previously. And uh, saying, you boy, what's the Don score? And uh, <laughs> done, done in an amusing style. So yeah, he became ubiquitous at conventions. I think he actually turned up at conventions when he wasn't even invited because he enjoyed them so much. So yeah, yeah. yeah. No, he, but, he was he was well loved. And um, it's not a, oh, goodness me, he's back in this again. It's a hooray. <laughs> yes. Where else is it going to pop up? Exactly. Yes, love him. So, talking of popping up, it's time to hear from our second interviewee, and we're going to hear from Chris Thompson, who has done the new effects on Horror of Thang Rock. Hello, uh, my name is Chris Thompson. I am a special effects and visual effects artist, and I have done the enhanced special effects for season 15, Horror of Thang Rock, and I did the enhanced special effects for season season 20, Enlightenment and Snake Dance, and I have been pr- providing special effects for the trailers for the last couple of um, short films that Pete McTee has been doing. Brilliant. Well, welcome to The Power of Three. It's always a delight to chat to somebody new, particularly when they're brilliant. You're brilliant. Thank you for having me. And thank <laughs> you. <laughs> so how did the involvement begin? with Horror of Fine Rock? Well, so I was contracted for all three episodes roughly at the same time at the start of last year. So it was funny because I was working 
we just finished the trailer for I think it was uh, the last John Pert we set with uh, Joe Grant and the Little Sea Devil Baby and I had applied eyelids to, to that and Russell had been saying like uh, oh we should get you to do some of the um, episode special effects at some point so they came back to me with um, right these are the next two seasons we want a new Mara we want uh, a new version of Enlightenment and uh, we would also like to have a look at Underworld for season 15 and uh, I sort of I kind of looked at everything and sort of looked at the workload and I sort of suggested we might be able to improve Underworld slightly but uh, the a lot of the feedback I've always heard in the past from Horror Fag Rock is that's an incredible episode until you get to that last 10 minutes and you see oh that's the Rutan um, so I suggested we might be able to like maybe upgrade Fan Rock from an A to maybe an A star, and that might be more worthwhile. And also I might be able to do it practically, as opposed to digitally. Um, and they seemed to like that and go with it. And it was quite funny because as soon as I got the email saying like, okay, we'll do Fan Rock, Big Finish messaged me with, uh, hey, we're going to do this, like, this new Doctor Who set. It's called Shades of Fear. Um, it's all about the color of monsters is green. You could get the Rutans back. And I'm like, no, I can't. I can't now. <laughs> so, yeah, no, that's how I came on board, Horror Fang Rock. Fantastic, because I'd imagine then that you'd be getting supplied a nice cleaned up version of everything by Peter Crocker. Yes. So, uh, well, that was one of the things, because uh, I had quite a, cu- a good couple of months to work in season 20, but Fang Rock had to be done relatively shorter. I think at the end of the day I only had two months before the deadline whenever I finally got the files in. So going practical helped there because uh, when say doing something in CG there's a lot it's like quite a short initial production time and then a lot on the back end because there's a ton of animation and rigging and rendering which on something like the routine would take ages whereas it's much easier whenever i don't have the episodes to spend a month making a puppet and then just have bring around a couple of mates and film it <laughs> so uh yeah no it, it worked for that but yes i got some some lovely shots in for uh, some lovely episodes in from peter and uh yeah i what's become traditional now is i watch them with somebody that's never seen classic doctor who before um, just sort of to get their impression. Just one of the things when it comes to working on uh, sort of the updated special effects, and they are controversial for a, a number of people, but the real audience for them is either people that want to rediscover the episodes in a new way or people that don't necessarily didn't grow up with older television and uh, who might find a shot like uh, who might find something like the route in a bit jarring than what they used to. And that was quite handy because, like, I remember when we were watching the episode, it was my friend uh, Rosie we were watching it with, and uh, I wasn't originally going to replace the boat crash because I thought, like, I've done extensively work with Thunderbird stuff. I just thought I was sort of on that level. And then, like, the, the cliffhanger for part one happened. She turned to me and was like, what? And I was like, okay, I might need to redo the boat crash. <laughs> so, uh... It is, it is one of my favorite episodes, so it was, it was a pleasure to watch it 20 to 30 times. <laughs> <laughs> so imagine then when you get, for example, like the scene we've seen in the trailer with the Rutan where we see Ruben coming up and then splitting and the Rutan emerging. 
Would you work with, for example, try and get like a clean version of the staircase and sort of work from that and then develop it and build on top of that? So basically, whenever it comes to, or at least the three episodes I've worked on, generally what you see in the episodes is what you get. So that's not the easiest thing to work with. I think particularly when I was doing the Mara and having to comp out the original Mara and then put the new one in, it's not perfect, but hopefully you're looking at the new one. It was kind of the same issue when with Ruben's transformation, because they almost had like two sections of stairs whenever they were dealing with the Rutin. Uh, so there was that bit where it's mostly staircase and you can't really see the bottom of the stairs where he transforms, because I think the actor was quite tall, and obviously the Rutin's quite, the original ones were quite small. Um, so you have to just manually paint him out and then add the new one on top. Luckily for the later shots, uh, because they only have one staircase, the routine's at different points of it, so I was able to like cut shots together to completely remove it, which is tricky, <laughs> but it's not too bad. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I mean, the whole process of how you work in terms of imagine then once you've created a clean version, you can sort of like mask that area. So if you've got something moving like in the bottom left-hand corner, like Tom's hand was popping in, then you'd have a clean version that you could sort of mask around. And you could work with that. Well, like, to be fair, there's some instances where I just replace the staircase altogether because uh, one of the unfortunate problems with uh, the way that they shot the route in is that it looks like it's climbing up the same set of stairs um, for like the guts of the rest of the episode. And uh, that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And one of the other things I wanted is like our route in to be faster so that it would, there's like an el a scary element to it. The, the bit just before the doctor throws the the signal flare at it, when it's like, the time for talk is over. I'm really impressed with that shot because it basically just lunges out of the darkness. But yeah, no, I replaced the stairs, which was quite funny because practical puppet CG stairs. And uh, that meant obviously that just we could just see more of the lighthouse and have a better progression of it going up it towards the end of the episode. I mean, what we've seen in the trailer looks fantastic. So how would you go about creating that? How much of that CG, how much is puppet, it's all very, very cleverly done. It's hard to tell. So, um, what's, it's behind me, if you can just about see it. He's, uh, he's a oh, lamp wow. now. <laughs> um, he's very heavy, because first puppet, so, you know, don't quite know what I'm doing. So what I did was, I did a 3D model of him, and that was what I sent to Pete and Russell to get, uh, uh, approved, and I was like, this is kind of what I have in mind. If you look on Twitter, I posted the shot of it beside the uh, design from uh, the gunpowder plot, so you can kind of see the parallels there. And uh, I essentially have inverted that model, so I've made a box and I cut out the root and shape of the different parts in that box, and then bought some, got it 3D printed. My friend Ryan, who is also one of the puppeteers, um, 3D printed me this sort of the, the inverted rootin molds and uh, plant those together, filled it with silicone, wait like two hours, peel that stuff out, and you've got bits of rootin. Turns out silicone is quite expensive, but you know, we'll learn for future. I didn't want to use latex because <laughs> while it's easier to paint, it does smell terrible and it disintegrates quite fast. So, uh, yeah, root, the rootin is made from body safe silicone, which is the same stuff that you make marital aids out of. I'm sure the guy at the shop was a bit like, what are you doing? 
<laughs> but it does mean that uh, up close, it looks like skin. It's uh, like it's got a really good. We uh, we shoved some Christmas lights inside it, so it does glow as well. And uh, yeah, the whole thing is held together by uh, sort of plumbing tubing. And uh, the rig inside it, like you could sort of hold, basically you can reach inside and hold it from a central armature. And then the puppets, the puppeteers have little like Muppet Show like things that they can use to curl their, the tentacles and have them wrap around. And then because the sea devils work so well, um, the eye has like a CG on eyelids afterwards. So it's the original eye. The two shots that uh, are in the trailer, like it's not moving, but that eye can blink. And uh, that's generally how we get all the emotion out of the Rutan. So like if it's pissed off, its eyes will narrow, its eye will <laughs> narrow. Or if it's surprised, it'll be like, Rah! and yeah, there was, they obviously added the eye in for the gunpowder plot. Um, but quite important for me that uh, the problem with the Rutans is that they're very much a special effect, I think, for me. Um, I really, I think Horror Fang Rock has incredible production design. Like, they did a really, really good job. It looks solid, it looks gothic. Like, it's one of my favorites for that reason. Same with Image of the Fendel. But the Rutan, I don't necessarily think it's a bad effect. I think it was an attempt to do something quite high concept. And uh, in a story that probably needed something with, like, teeth or like something quite scary and in the end you get this ball and so replacing that I wanted to make it uh, well for one I wanted to make something that a Centauran could fight um, like something that could walk up the stairs like quite menacingly and quite slowly um, something that looked from above like the original Rutan so I wanted I wanted that to be relatively consistent and also it needed to not look like a Dalek and it needed to not look like Kroll because uh, obviously another squid-related <laughs> puppet thing that uh, one day may come up in the future. Who knows? Good luck to that person. But yeah, so that's kind of how the design came about. And the only bit you ever see the Rutan reacting with the actors is whenever like there's the stinger tentacles come out. And it's this like ribbed tentacle thing. So those are on the Rutan. You've got three sets of tentacles. So you've got the three it walks on. And the back one is deliberately like limping just because one to explain how slow it is and two because it's been in a crash so it being injured is part of the plot it's got the two like sort of manipulator tentacles which yeah. uh, are again from the the gunpowder plot design and then it's got these like little ancillary tentacles that kind of wave from side to side that we had like an air machine sort of blowing around those are the ones that come out to, like sting people yeah so They're fantastic Obviously, this so, is the first time was... I've ever had the words um, manipulator tentacles and ciliary tentacles quoted in this podcast. So there's a first. It's a, it's a, it's a good word. <laughs> Getting very hip with my tentacles. Yeah, so like the design, it's... There is a, there is thought put into it. Um, I don't want people to think that like, oh, we just changed it for the sake of changing it. So fingers crossed it goes down okay. People seem to... Particularly whenever we put up the sh photos of the pr uh, the actual practical prop, people seem to like that, so... Yeah. Now, you mentioned at the top that you were involved with the trailer for this release with Season 15. And my word, what a beaut that is. How long did that take you to do? Because it looks... I mean, I, I've said on Twitter 
before I realised it was you who'd done it, I just said, it feels like a cutaway from Day of the Doctor. It's that good. I love it. Thank you. Yeah, so towards the end of Fangrock, uh, Pete messaged me and was basically like, is this possible? Because, he, like, I think he want. There's always this element to, like, outdo ourselves when it comes to the trailers every time. And uh, the last one with... Uh, with Tegan, I thought was really, really incredible. And Pete's really good at doing these these character shorts that uh, inject more characterization in like three minutes than an entire season of this character got back on the show. And uh, particularly that little end bit with Tegan in the last one, he completely nailed the character so well and made her so powerful and all that stuff. And whenever uh, I've sort of read the script for this Leela one and I saw the production design they were planning and all the special props that they were getting made by Little Shop Props, um, I could see like the, the same level of thought had gone into this. Like, uh, she's wearing that out that robe for a reason. She has a Dalek gun for a reason, and uh, she's standing on top of the Citadel while the High Council of the Time Lords are hiding in a boardroom trying to transport the planet to Earth for a reason. And yeah, so. It was like, right, okay, I can't really let the site down. So we had a chat. We actually had a chat like right after the five doctor screening about it and sort of logistics and stuff. And then uh, they let me come down to the shoot itself, which was in a quarry in Kent underneath the Gatwick Airport flight path. Yeah, it was it was a really, really lovely day. Uh, Louise was knocking it out of the park as always. There was, there was a wonderful moment, actually. It's whenever we were doing a rehearsal and we'd set her up and we'd set up a... Uh, we had a green screen, but behind the green screen, there was like a 50 meter drop from a quarry. So like the vibes were pretty much on point. I remember going back to sort of our equipment camp to get something just as she started delivering her lines. So, and there was a huge rock wall in front of us. And I just heard this like, you are wrong. I am Leela, like full on theatrical projection. And it's like, wow, Leela's back. Um, Superb. She's absolutely brilliant. But yeah, I got to um, be on location. We got to work out a bunch of stuff because obviously it's on green screen, but also it's handheld, which is a logistical nightmare because obviously the background's got to sync up with the foreground. So I was putting like tape on the green screen that I could track, but also um, Jeremy, our cameraman, that was really great at working together to... Uh, like, he would always leave something and, like, would always just have the green screen off the screen so you could see past it. So I could see the quarry wall, which is, like, about uh, 100 meters away. So I could track that as well. Because uh, you don't want the Citadel moving like it's uh, five feet behind Leela. You want it looking like it's about a couple of miles away. So uh, there was a bit of that going on. And, uh, yeah, so... Did that shoot, uh, got trapped in London for like two or three days because of the whole the Gawick strike thing. Finally got home and then I think I had just about over a month to do the special effects. And I, I've done 30 big finish trailers at this point. It wasn't that... Uh, there's nothing in there that's that difficult. The Probably the most important one was the Citadel burning. And uh, how I basically did that was it's a really low poly model I made in like an evening. And then I just covered it in images of smoke, which I then shifted slightly. So it looks like it's really slowly billowing. And then I have some slow motion explosions that I was able to buy from Shutterstock, which is the big, huge explosions going off. 
And then, yeah, um, as many Dalek sorcerers as I could get away with at that point without my computer exploding. <laughs> I oh, wish I could amazing. add more, but uh, unfortunately, I am not uh, ILM. <laughs> no. But were there any physical Dalek props there, or was it everything created by yourself? Everything myself, I'm afraid. Um, wow. Uh, I, I do remember the uh, the call sheet Russell said to be like, unfortunately, there's no Daleks, boo, but we've got Chris. <laughs> <laughs> It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, no, it's, it's, it just, I mean, it feels epic. And I think you must be delighted about it. There's been so much love for it. And people have been really excited by it as well. I, yeah, it's uh, like we, we shot it ages ago. So, you, you know, whenever you're like, you've made something really cool and you just want that serotonin hit of just like releasing it to people and like, you're not getting it just yet. But yeah, no, I'm really, really glad it's gone down well. Uh, the feedback's been over like really overwhelming it unfortunately landed on the same day that a graphic novel i wrote and a uh, book i uh have written sort of got announced and arrived as well so everything i worked on in the latter half of uh 2023 just dropped on the one day <laughs> which is like a publicity nightmare but i can't complain oh and for those who are interested give a wee plug to your other work there that you've just mentioned where people can find it so I work with the Jerry Anderson uh, estate, and uh, so with them I've been doing a series of technical manuals. So um, currently we've done Space 1999, uh, the Moonbase Alpha technical manual, we've done Shadow for UFO fans, we've done WIN, which is Joe 90, and we've just announced uh, World Space Patrol, which is Fireball Axel 5. And uh, they are books ranging from 300 to 120 pages of all the stuff in that universe, illustrated by me, written by myself and Andrew Clements, or Jack Noll in one of the other cases. And then the graphic novel I wrote was for the 40th anniversary of Terrorhawks. So it's uh, Deep Bluesy, and it's illustrated by the lovely Connor Flanagan, and it's the 40th anniversary Terrorhawks adventure, and he has done an amazing job. So, good times. Can I just point out, I I'm a massive Terrorhawks fan. In fact, I'm going to see if I can find it just now. I have cool. got a Sergeant Major Zero football from back in the day, somewhere in this cupboard, signed by Jerry Anderson. And I'm just trying <laughs> to see where he is. I've got him somewhere here. I've got so much rubbish in this cupboard. There he is. I want just to prove that I'm not talking nonsense. I've shown this to Jamie Anderson as well. Uh, I want, come on, Zero. Oh, crikey. Have you had showing him everything. Uh, I haven't, actually. Oh, whoa. There we go. My my have my or oh, just squished him a little bit, but there we oh, go. It's one of one the... slightly squished original Sergeant Major Zero football, and on the back, see there's go the silver pen signed by Jerry Anderson. So I got that That's signed so in cool. Edinburgh in the late nineties, and uh, I'm going to keep Zero on my desk for a while. I think he deserves it. A little break. But yeah, I'm a huge Terry Hawks fan. So I will be bringing. I will be getting myself a copy of that when I get paid this month. So yeah, and please do a Terry Hawks technical manual type thing as well, because that would just be heaven. It would be cool. Um, I did. Uh, there was. I did development on a new Terrorhawk series as well, and uh, it did involve redesigning the Zeroid slightly. And I remember sort of yep. being like, just keep trying to nudge them back against the the feedback from the producers to what they looked yes. like in the eighty. Yep, oh, I love Zero, absolute hero. Anyway, this is not the Terrorhawks podcast, but there's an idea for a new one just popped into my head. It is so. It's so Terrorhawks to like hijack a Doctor Who podcast, though. <laughs> completely, completely. Stay on this channel. It's been fantastic. It's not been a 1090. It's been great fun. So thank you so much for coming on and having a chat, Chris. Really enjoyed it. And, thank uh, you for having me. Yes. 
I definitely encourage everyone to go out and buy the Terrorhawks book, even though I've not seen it yet. But hey, graphic novel, Terrorhawks, can't go wrong. Oh, and buy season 15 on Blu-ray too. Oh yes, that, that. <laughs> it sells itself, it's fine. Well, there we go. Thank you to Chris. And of course, thanks to Peter for his time earlier on too. So there we go. That's the end of episode 200 for us. But we've got some people who'd like to give us some messages. So let's activate the space-time telegraph and see who's coming in to join us. Hello, Kenny. Hello, Stevie. This is a voice from the past. Tom Harris here. Looking forward to uh, subject matter today. Absolutely. Season 15, Tom. So, of course, you'll remember this vividly from original transmission. I do. I do indeed. Um, in fact, quite a lot of it I've not rewatched since it was first broadcast. So a lot of my memories are, are very old indeed, but maybe maybe distance actually lends a certain perspective. Yeah, I mean, this was at the height of, of uh, Tom Baker's reign. What I do remember about this period, it was actually, so when was this broadcast? 78? 77, 78, yeah. Um, what I do remember, whenever I think of the horrifying rock, I think of the Target cover, the Target novelisation cover, which is a lovely picture of Tom wearing a bowler hat with rope around his, his shoulder. And I remember when that was first released and Tom came to John Mingus, sorry, John Menzies in Buchanan Street in Glasgow to sign books, to sign copies of, the, you know, in order to promote horrifying rock novelisation. And I had just come back from a school trip to uh, Paris and I had had some money, spending money left over because my mum and dad had given me quite a lot of money. And I had foolishly gone up to Glasgow with my friend Brem and spent lots of money on all sorts of things, including horrifying rock paperback and a hardback version of the Tales of the Trigon Empire. And because I couldn't stand to have any money in my pocket, I had to spend it. When I got back from Glasgow, read in the papers that Tom Baker was going to be in Glasgow one week later. And I begged and pleaded my mum to give me more money to go up to meet Tom Baker. And she refused. Oh. And, uh, and, I, and I, I missed that opportunity to meet Tom Baker. Uh, so that's kind of bittersweet memories of that particular time. But anyway, that was sometime after the broadcast of this this season. But I do associate the two because of that brilliant cover from the Target paperback. Of course, the two people who were in that queue for definite were Stephen Moffat and David Tennant. That's right. And possibly, I'd be imag- I'd be amazed if Peter Capaldi wasn't there as well. Yeah, yeah. I know it's amazing when you think about it. Yeah, the west of Scotland, we really are the home of Doctor Who, aren't we? All these wonderful people. We well, own Doctor Who. We certainly should, yes. Although, yeah, I mean, if I was the owner of Doctor Who, things might be different, but let's move on swiftly. Absolutely. Uh, so you mentioned Horrifying Rock. Invisible Enemy, of course, we discussed way back in one of our earliest That's episodes right. with The Fear of the Prawn, which we know that Dave hates, and we've just discovered that Stevie hates as well. So, yeah, I never quite got the fear of it, but... Um, Maybe I like prawns too much. Love I'll tell you content. what I remember about uh, Invisible Touch. Uh, Invisible Touch. There's my genesis. <laughs> Invisible Enemy. Um, is that shortly before the season was broadcast, a number of stories appeared in the press. And our, our record, our, our newspaper record was the Daily Record. That's what we got in our, in our, 
uh, house. And there was a story that appeared in it that the doctor was going to be joined by uh, a robot dog called K9. And I, I remember being quite appalled about this. I thought this was a sign that, you know, the, the, the Doctor Who was being dumbed down for kids. And I remember speaking to Brem at school and I said, have you seen this? And he didn't believe me. He was so appalled at the idea. He thought I was winding him up. Um, and of course, that was it was in that it was invisible enemy where K9 first appeared, and of course I was proved wrong because he turned out to be quite a, a nice addition to the cast and has become kind of iconic in in your sense. But that was yeah, I, you know I was I was growing up at the time, so in seventy seven I was fourteen, fifteen, so I was kind of I passed the stage of of being frightened by Doctor Who and I was now at the stage where I was getting into all sorts of other science fiction and becoming a bit more impatient with Doctor Who and about the special effects and the the format. Still was a huge fan, but I'd started, to, I guess you could say I'd start to fall out of love with it a little bit at that point. I can't believe you'd get impatient with Doctor Who and fall out of love with it, Tom. That's just well, incredible. incredible. I don't know how history goes in cycles, doesn't it? <laughs> Well, Tom, thank you for your insights into season 15 and also for joining us for episode 200. So again, thank you for starting the ball rolling on this many moons ago. A great pleasure. Can I just say it is a delight to, for me to see that this podcast appear on my uh, my feed every every week or so on my iPhone. It's brilliant that you've kept it going. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I have not been a particularly... Uh, a constant presence uh, in, in recent episodes and recent seasons, but you're doing a great job, so thank you for doing that. You're very kind. Thank you for that, Tom. But hey, it would never have happened if you hadn't started at all. And it's always nice to have you pop in when you are available and have things to see. God bless you. Speak to you soon, Tom. Cheers. Of course, it wouldn't be an episode of the Pyro 3 podcast without my co-conspirator for the majority of our episodes, the man who's been here since day one, and to celebrate episode 200, he's coming in to us via the Space Time Telegraph, calling David Steele. <laughs> I seem to be stuck up here. Hmm. Yes, hello, everyone. Sat in my jammies recording this on the, the morning of the 8th of February. Kenny, how, how can I help you? I'm, I'm very busy and important. Absolutely. Well, Dave, we're talking about the season 15 Blu-ray and some of the special features on it. And something be keen to know is that we've discussed season 15 a few weeks ago in general but how do you think season 15 shapes up in general in the whole sort of tom baker era that was something we never discussed last time where does it fit in for you well it's not my favorite season and it has one of my top three stories of all time in it so there's no way in heck it's going to be at my bottom i don't know do you, do you oh he's put me on the spot folks can you tell do you want me to rank them? Is that what you're saying? You want me to rank no, them? No, not at all. I wouldn't ask you to rank them. I'm just sort of like, where does it, is it like top tier, middle tier, sort of lower middle so tier? It, it's middle It's middle tier, to be honest, yeah. I mean, I, I love Fang Rock. And as I've said a thousand times, Invisible Enemy scares me to death. But it's, and, and Louise is, is the best actor Doctor Who ever had. But I think there's a, there's, there's a, a slight sort of, um, that slight 70s desperation of running out of money at various points kind of does knock a little bit off for me. So it's probably mid-tier, yeah. Raising, raising an eyebrow. Maybe tricks I'm trying to be tactful. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 
wouldn't dislike it by any stretch at all. But I think it is think hard to dislike. It's, there's something in every story that will make you smile, for good or for bad reasons. Yeah, I mean, Louise, as I keep saying, it's worth watching just for her alone. I remember, I remember there was one point you just did a rewatch of all of her stories just because she's so, so good. She raises everything. She's so committed. She's so, um, so professional. Um, she's beautiful, obviously, and she's just, like, so careful um everything she does with Leela. Yeah, it's it's an I often wish that she'd done a bit more. You know, I often think that Rodan should have gone Rodan and Leela should have gone with the doctor at the end of Invasion of Time and they've been you know, because obviously Romana this is a conversation for another time. Romana's very much just Rodan with a slightly different spelling. But you know a season yeah it's it's an interest I don't think it's I don't think it's his best, but it's one of those ones they were kind of making it but the seat of their pants at points and that shows unfortunately but it's there's still, there's always a lot to enjoy, and there's some really, really good stuff amongst it. Yeah, yeah. Rodan, not to be confused, of course, with the giant bird thing from the Godzilla films. Should point out. No, or the the overweight boy from Grain Chill. <laughs> oh my goodness, that was a bit cheeky, a bit cheeky, yeah. but I get it. I get it. That was funny. So there we go, Dave. Thank you for popping in and joining us no, for the celebrated no, 200th episode. I can go from a bath now. Take care, everyone. I'll see you soon. And it would be wrong not to have our other co-conspirator here as well. So, here's Dr. John Bowen. Happy 200th episode to the power of three. What a podcasting milestone. And what a privilege to be just a small part of this big story. Well, what are my thoughts on season 15 uh, coming to us in this beautifully packaged, glossy Blu-ray box? Well, I guess... I'll share some of my thoughts about when I saw it for the first time because I'm one of the few people involved, in fact the only person involved really, who can remember what it was like to watch season 15 as a as a child. Um, my views of it are pretty clear in some respects but in others a bit hazy but I'll explain why. First of all, Horror of Fine Rock, what is there to say about this stone cold classic that hasn't been said already? It's just such a an excellent uh, adventure from uh, from Terence Dicks. Beautifully written, beautifully suspenseful. I, I remember being really creeped out by the way the the Rutan possessed the the bodies of the the lighthouse crew one by one, uh, and it was particularly disturbing uh, seeing Reuben killing Vince. That really shocked me as a kid. And I think the fact was that unlike some of the the Doctor Who um, monsters and most of them, you know, this wasn't about firing a a death ray, a zap, and then they fall to the ground. But there was this kind of physical contact, this, you know, the hand on the head, it just felt, ah, there was something about it that still makes me feel uh, uncomfortable. Um, But yeah, a great story, fantastic cast. Really, yeah, 10 out of 10. Can't say anything else. Invisible Enemy, I remember when I was watching it for the first time, I thought this was really good and I really enjoyed it. And then it kind of tailed off for me and I was watching it again recently, refreshing my memory, and the same thing happened. I think the start of it is a really good setup. Um, you know, from the scene in the TARDIS going into the the shuttle, the kind of talk among the crew. I thought this feels quite gritty and and real. 
uh, and I like the idea of this this virus um, infecting people in that way. But then it kind of lost its way for me a little bit. I like Professor Marius. I thought he was a uh, an interesting character, but of course, for many people, the star of the show is is K Nine. But I I never really took to K Nine when I was a kid. I probably have more nostalgic feelings towards K Nine now than I did then, and it's really apparent even from his very first story that you know the limitations of this robot dog are well and truly in in place. Uh, the fact that he can't go anywhere very fast uh, and he certainly can't sneak up on anyone without this thunderous grinding of, of gears you know, anyone who has a dog knows that they, one thing they know how to do is, is stealth mode they can they can creep up uh, but canine, not so much so I would probably give Invisible Enemy a, a solid 7 out of 10 were it not for the and the hairy prawn, uh, maybe a nine. Oh, we've lost the signal now. Oh, well. But hey, that was nice. At least we were joined at this special party, Stevie, so it's not just us. It's not just not just the two of us with a, a bottle of... A bottle of... What's something appropriate for Doctor Who? Iron Brew. Iron Brew. Is, is it Scottish? Cool? That'll do. Doctor's mainly Scottish anyway with all these actors these days, so... Has he... Have we ever got Iron Brew in Doctor Who? No... But I'm sure we've had, Tunnux, we've had Tunnock's products on screen during Flux when the Sontarans were in the shop eating chocolate. And you could That's see some Tunnock's things. So, Excellent. yeah, we'll take the Tunnock's. So that counts. So, yes, Doctor Who likes Scottish food as well. And so do the aliens. So there we go. Anyway, Stevie, thank you so much for your company. It has been a pleasure on this 200th edition. Kenny, here's to 400. <laughs> <laughs> Doubling down. But before we go, Stevie, you have the question, don't you? I do have a question, Kenny, and, you know, it's a difficult question to ask you, given, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of uh, things you could choose. But have you got, uh, I don't know, a particular song that you think might be suitable for us to play out with? I think I have, Stevie. I think it's is, very appropriate. Is it Rutan, Rutan, Rutan? It's not. I, oh, I know that you're rooting for me to pick that one, but no. Um, <laughs> I actually changed my mind when I was walking earlier on, because my original thought was, could go for Pet Shop Boys and Invisible, which would, would seem appropriate. Mm -hmm. But I thought, no, let's go for something that's more appropriate for the horror of Fang Rock. So, Stevie, if you owned a lighthouse, what's the most important thing you must do when it gets dark? I would say lock the door, windows, and upper <laughs> gantry so nothing green and pulsing can get in. Um, I'm thinking light the lamp. Yes, absolutely. You'd want to leave a light on. So let's go for Belinda Carlisle and... Leave a light on. Oh, well done, Kenny. There we go. Seamless. Absolutely seamless. <laughs> you can tell I'm a failed comedian. That's been us. That's been episode 200. We'll be back next week and we will be chatting with some more guests and we'll be chatting some more season 15. So until then, I've been Kenny Smith. And I've been Stephen Day. And this is Belinda. Belinda.